Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and our discussion today will be focused on the Caliphate's rebellious East once again. This isn't by choice, I'm not trying to conduct a deep dive here, but it's all our sources care to report during this period. They have no shortage of material either, as Al-Hajjaj gave the Iraqis plenty to rage against. We'll have to wait until next time to start fleshing out other topics during Abdul Malik's time in charge, but for now, let's get started with episode 26, The East. We last paused our narrative in the closing years of the 7th century, around 697. By that point, Abdul Malik had been hailed caliph in Damascus for over a dozen years, but had ruled Iraq and the East for less than five. And as we discovered last time, saying he ruled Iraq in those five years is overly generous of us. His governor al-Hajjaj basically instigated, repulsed, then punished repeated rebellions from various groups of malcontents. It was lucky for the Umayyads that the opposition was fractured or they may have lost Iraq once again. But the grievances these movements held proved too disparate for alliances to form. Anyway, considering the deep divisions within Iraq, on ethnic levels, tribal levels, and others, the violence of its recent history, its many Karajite and religious splinter movements, to name just the major contributing factors, maybe you can excuse our dedicating another episode to this part of the caliphate, despite all the attention it received last time. We'll also need to discuss the lands east of Iraq, Khurasan and beyond. If it feels to you like I don't always give this vast region the attention it deserves, then I agree, but it just always features more like an afterthought in our sources, at least up until this point. The Arabs may have conquered these lands, but we get no narrations from there besides ones about raids and sieges, because the Arabs didn't settle in Central Asia. Cities like Herat, Balkh, and Kabul were controlled by armies patrolling for tribute from far away Iraq. Their remoteness had made them prone to rebellion, and it prompted Ziyad to found the garrison city of Maru. I'm going to upload a couple maps of the east to this episode's page on thecaliphs.com. They should come in handy for anyone interested in keeping track of the many cities and areas introduced today. So to rectify this neglect of Khurasan, let's first catch ourselves up. To put it briefly, things were going terribly. The Arabs met little resistance in the Persian cities close to Iraq, but in Central Asia, by modern-day Afghanistan or Uzbekistan, settlements around there displayed regular opposition to Arab rule, either from their own populations or through claims by other local powers. There were the Yabruz in Tukharistan, the Sogdians to their north near Khwarezm, and the Zunbils of Zabudistan to their south, all three east of Khurasan. When the sons of Ziyad ruled the east, one or two of them died, leading campaigns either to pacify or invade these lands, which means they had been resisting Arab rule for quite a while now. So when the second fitna came around, and capable leaders like Al-Muhallab bin Sufra went back to Iraq, Arab control over distant populations effectively collapsed. Mayyad control over Iraq was quite tenuous, and beyond that, the Arabs who held the most power were the renegade Karajites. So further east, cities like Kandahar just stopped paying tribute and were claimed by some other local dynasty. 
Meru remained a center of Arab power, but being alienated from the rest of the caliphate, there wasn't much it could do besides survive. Arab armies also managed to hold on to Sistan and some nearby areas. Abdul Madik sent an Umayyad to rule over Khurasan after dealing with Ibn Zubayr. And that guy did okay for a while, but was eventually defeated by the Ratbil of Zabulistan. I should clarify something. In these oral accounts, the leaders of other nations always bear the same name, reflecting the limited knowledge the speaker had of these other civilizations. So just like how the Arabs called every Byzantine emperor Constantine, they also incorrectly referred to every leader of Zabulistan as Ratbil. Ratbil, I believe, was the founder of that specific Turkic dynasty, and its leaders were supposed to be called Zunbils. Anyway, as the Zunbil the Arabs referred to as Ratbil began gaining the upper hand, Abdul Malik appointed the newly triumphant Al-Hajjaj in charge of Khurasan, combining the whole east in the hands of his hated governor of Iraq. This was also around 697. So now that we are all caught up with the narrative, maybe a brief reminder of why Al-Hajjaj was so hated before continuing. It was more than just that he represented Umayyad authority. He went out of his way to goad and provoke the Iraqis into stepping out of line. Also, I referred to lots of wars last time, even once using the phrase army after army in reference to what Al-Hajjaj levied against the many threats to Umayyad authority. While these armies weren't exactly made up of eager volunteers, and the Iraqis resented being forced to march to war, especially out to distant lands like where they had to face Mutraf and Qatari. On top of forcing them to fight for a caliphate they felt oppressed by, Al-Hajjaj managed to both insult and materially injure the men of Iraq by reducing their salaries. This completed the social demotion of the Iraqis, who up until then had been paid according to the system devised by the second caliph Omar, common to all Arab warriors. Al-Hajjaj not only lowered the pay, but he made it contingent on active service, whereas it had previously been a sort of pension which increased for every battle one fought for the Ummah. These were some of the major policies which made sure Al-Hajjaj was deeply despised. His new assignment as governor of Khurasan filled the Iraqis with dread at the miserably long missions they had to look forward to, and for way less money now. Al-Hajjaj knew that despite his appointment as governor of Khurasan, he had to remain in Iraq. His main responsibility was holding its two cities down for the Umayyads, and given their rest of history, it was probably a good idea to stay close to Kufa and Basra. He quickly recruited Al-Muhallab to help run the new province as the great general had just finished mopping up the last few significant Karajite threats to the caliphate. Al-Muhallab was a perfect choice, and he wasted little time after his arrival in Meru, leading raids even across the Oxus River, a first for the Arabs. As usual, we are told he defeated larger forces, outsmarted his opponents on and off the battlefield, and earned the Ummah much tribute from faraway cities like Bukhara and Samarkand. After subduing Tukharistan, or Bactria, he invaded the Sogdians and won great riches there as well, there being modern-day Uzbekistan. Al-Muhallab's efforts left only the Zunbils of Zabulistan to deal with. They had done very well in the absence of the Arab armies and were the power behind the Ummah's loss of a number of city-states. Kabul, Kandahar, Herat had all been taken by them, and they had made the few remaining Arab forces work hard to hold on to Sistan, which may have become the easternmost border of the caliphate. Some histories say the caliphate's eastern border ended at Zarang, others at Bust, and both are in modern-day Afghanistan. 
The first campaign al-Hajjaj sent to Zabulistan was a disaster. It was led by the governor of Sistan, and his armies kept pursuing their retreating opponents further and further into barren lands. Before they knew it, the Arabs were trapped in a valley with no provisions for the trip back home. Al-Tabari has a distressing narration, which tells how some of the emaciated survivors of that army made it all the way back to Sistan, only to die after eating too suddenly, their bodies shutting down from the shock. So the next year, either 98 or 99, al-Hajjaj resolved to send an even larger force to deal with Ratbil once and for all. The problem was, Zabudistan was thousands of miles away, and the Iraqi armies especially hated their thankless campaigns when they put them in so much danger so far away from home. This was only a problem for the Iraqis, of course. It did not concern al-Hajjaj in the least. In fact, he often looked for ways to make uncomfortable situations even more humiliating for them and this one was no exception. He tasked the de facto chief of the Kufan nobles with putting together an army comprised of his peers and their kin and leading it to Zabulistan himself in service of the caliphate. Now this raised eyebrows at the time, not only because it was a deliberate insult to these elders, but also because it was well known that the governor and his choice of commander had a deep hatred for one another. The chief of Iraqi's nobility at the time was Abdul Rahman ibn Muhammad ibn al-Ash'af. His grandfather had scuppered Ali's chances of victory during the first fitna, ensuring continued influence for both himself and the rest of the tribal nobility in Iraq. His father had helped Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad control Kufa during Yazid's reign, and was killed fighting Mukhtar's movement with Mus'ab ibn al-Zubayr. Mukhtar was another threat to the supremacy of the tribal elders, and so Muhammad ibn al-Ash'ath's initiative in resisting him was greatly appreciated by the Kufan chiefs. Ever since al-Hajjaj's arrival, his tyrannical rule had all but snuffed out their influence. It wasn't supposed to be this way. See, in other parts of the caliphate with local Arab tribes, the caliph just tied himself into their leadership the old-fashioned way, by making sure his clan married into the ones with the most influence. The problem was that ever since Abdul Malik's brother had been assassinated in Kufa, the caliph remained uninterested in giving Iraq another chance, preferring it be governed by the likes of al-Hajjaj. The tribal leaders of Iraq probably had nothing to do with the assassination, but they had fostered and encouraged an air of hostility to the Umayyads, a crime which al-Hajjaj was making them pay for dearly every day. Despite all this friction, there was little the people of Iraq could do. So Abdul Rahman ibn al-Ash'ath went ahead and assembled the army the governor had requested. It had so many splendid tribal nobles that it was referred to as the Peacock Army, either in reference to their many colored banners or more likely to mock their grandeur. Al-Tabari says this army cost two million silver dirham, his way of marveling at the wages these nobles and their clans were paid annually from the treasury. Before going on, I should note that some of Al-Tabari's narrations make it sound like Abdul Rahman and Al-Hajjaj weren't on the worst of terms, even saying that Al-Hajjaj had made Abdul Rahman the new governor of Sistan before sending him out. Of course, Al-Tabari has all sorts of tales in his compendium. And in another one, Abdul Rahman's uncle warns Al-Hajjaj that Abdul Rahman was too independent-minded to simply follow orders, and Al-Hajjaj replies by saying he welcomed the possibility of a surprise. So I guess this is just a reminder that we should never be too sure of our ability to tell apart facts from impressions when dealing with early oral histories. 
Abdul Rahman marched his 40,000 strong peacock army all the way to Sistan, a grueling journey which probably took around 10 weeks to complete. He then worked out a whole new approach to the Arab invasion of Sabudistan. Instead of going straight for the kill in the heart of the mountainous region, Abdul Rahman pursued a more patient approach. He methodically captured settlements and fortifications at the edges of the Zumbil's domain, and in doing so slowly trapped his opponents in their relatively barren lands. This approach took time, however, and with the onset of winter, Abdul Rahman wrote to Al-Hajjaj, telling him that he was going to put off further hostilities until the spring. The reply Ibn al-Ash'ath received from the governor was beyond humiliating, with al-Hajjaj calling him a weakling who could never hope to best even the lowliest of foes. He insulted him and his men repeatedly, even making reference to Ibn al-Ash'ath's mother for good measure. He concluded with orders to either take the fight immediately to Ratbil or to appoint someone else in his stead who would do so. Ibn al-Ash'ath had this letter read out to all his troops, who seethed at their governor's flagrant disregard for their lives. Abdul Rahman told his men he considered himself just another soldier and would do as the rest of the army determined. Needless to say, they were indignant, and I found a good translation online which summarizes their many replies. It goes, quote, We will not obey the enemy of God, who like a pharaoh coerces us to the farthest campaigns and keeps us here so that we can never see our wives and children. The gain is always his. If we are victorious, the conquered land is his. If we perish, then he is rid of us. I like that. It merges speech from multiple narrations, but it really sums up the mood, especially that last bit at the end, about how they felt that Hajjaj just wanted them dead. The peacock army proceeded to disclaim their allegiance to al-Hajjaj and offered it to Abdul Rahman ibn al-Ash'af instead. It's important to note that nobody disclaimed their pledge to Abdul Malik. The pharaoh in that quote was al-Hajjaj, and all these armies wanted was to replace their governor, whom they rightly felt hated the people he was meant to look after. Ibn al-Ash'ath wrote to other leaders in the east, asking them to join his rebellion, but most declined and were told that Al-Muhallab, who had just got done with Takharistan and was preparing to invade Zagdia, forwarded the mutinous request onto Al-Hajjaj. Abdul Rahman then concluded a treaty with the Zumbil. He promised not to raid Zabulistan if his rebellion was a success, and in return Zumbil promised to shelter Abdul Rahman and his men should they ever require protection. And so the Peacock army marched back to Iraq. But here something strange begins to happen in our sources. Successive narrations about this army tell us that it morphed from a band of Kufan clans out to replace their governor to something much larger and with more indeterminate aims. We get tribal poetry, celebrating the rise of the Qahtanis led by the noble Ibn al-Ash'af against the oppressive Adnanis al-Hajjaj and Abdul Malik. We get religious exhortations from new members of this uprising who swear to act in, quote, defense of the holy book, the way of the prophet, and to punish the sinful men who spilled the blood of the prophet's clan. We also hear the familiar laments of the Mawali and their sympathizers, faulting the caliphate for its treatment of non-Arab Muslims. All the while, the army's reported size keeps growing. First 60,000, then 80, then 120,000. Some narrations go up to and beyond 200,000, which is insane. Do you see what's happening here? Last episode, we said that the Umayyads could rest easy despite significant resistance in the east precisely because the various opposition movements were disunited. 
Abdul Rahman's rebellion incidentally happened to tick all the right boxes to attract support along the Ummah's most galvanized fault lines. He was a Qahtani noble, while the Quraysh and the Taqafi al-Hajjaj were Adnanis. Despite his grandfather's role in thwarting Ali's bid for leadership, he could count on Hashemite support from the Kufans because he was from the city and up against the hated al-Hajjaj. Being from Kufa also made his cause attractive to the Mawadi, who remembered it as the city of Mukhtar, the first Arab to have held them as equals to his own people. And finally, since all their leaders had recently been wiped out by the Umayyad Caliphate, there were plenty of Karajite tribes with bloodied axes to grind. While it is true that the more supporters Ibn al-Ash'af had, the higher the chances that his rebellion would be a success, I just want to point out that there were real downsides to the gelling together of so many disparate movements. Rebellions like these hadn't coalesced before because they had so little in common. Plenty of Arabs still looked down on the Mawadi, and their support for Muqtad had undermined his popularity among Arabs before. The same sort of double-edged dynamic came from importing the tribal feud into this conflict. It may have increased the number of combatants, but it made the fighting more open-ended and difficult to control. It's quite notable that these different movements even managed to come together under Ibn al-Ash'at at all, but their doing so has led to great confusion as to what exactly was going on at the time. Some commentators have regarded this rebellion as a flare-up of the tribal feud, others as the third attempt by the Mawali at gaining equal standing within the Caliphate, the first two being under Mukhtar and Mutraf. While this is a difficult question to answer, what is clear to see is that Ibn al-Ash'at only lost control of the movement as it grew larger. While those who joined still pledged to him as the rightful governor of Iraq, many began calling for the downfall of the Umayyads, especially those with pro-Hashemite or ex-Karajite backgrounds. These developments must have worried Ibn al-Ash'af, who tried and failed to take charge more assertively. But he could at least take solace in the fact that even if his supporters clamored for Abd al-Madik, they would have to get through al-Hajjaj first. The story of the fighting between the two is actually quite gripping, but I don't want to get your hopes up as I intend to cover it like I do all other battles, quickly and with as little detail as possible. Al-Hajjaj had left his advance guard about 150 miles north of Basra, but Abdul Rahman easily overwhelmed them with his massive army, estimated at over 150,000 men. This was in early January 701, and by mid-February, Ibn al-Ash'at had taken Basra after the city was abandoned by Al-Hajjaj, realized he would be quickly cut off by such a huge army and would have no hope of defending the city if that happened. In March, the first major pitched battle between the two sides took place, and despite its enormous advantage in size, Abdul Rahman's army was defeated, in perhaps the third day of warring, by Sufyan al-Kalbi's decisive and brilliant generalship. War narrations are never great in our sources, but there are numerous descriptions of Ibn al-Ash'at's armies, especially the Mawadi, crumbling or fleeing when faced with the methodical Syrian warriors on the battlefield. It's true that our sources are no fans of the Mawadi or anyone who championed their cause, but this wasn't the first time the professionalism of the Syrian armies proved decisive at war. After his defeat, Ibn al-Ash'af led his massive army to Kufa and took control of his hometown after a brief skirmish with the guy holding it for al-Hajjaj. His supporters from Basra flocked to Kufa, as did anyone who wanted to take on the hated governor. This is when we get the highest estimates for Ibn al-Ash'at's supporters, at times beyond 200,000. Al-Hajjaj marched out to meet them by April, 
and the two sides dug trenches and fought many skirmishes, about fifty in a hundred days. The situation seemed dire for Al-Hajjaj, who could make no progress at all. Despite receiving continuous support from Damascus, his forces couldn't inflict much harm on their opponents and were the much quicker of the two to get worn out by battle. Kufa was self-sufficient, and more importantly, its rebels were jubilant at finally getting the chance to mete out some revenge on the governor they so despised. By late July, Damascus lost its nerve and Abdul Malik chose to capitulate, overruling Al-Hajjaj's objections, whom he now quietly blamed for biting off more than he could chew. Abdul Malik sent two of his brothers to make an offer to Ibn al-Ash'af, and what an offer it was! Al-Hajjaj would be replaced by Ibn al-Ash'af, who was promised much autonomy, and the Iraqis would get their salaries restored. All they had to do was accept Abdul Malik as their caliph and pick one of the two brothers he had sent them as their next governor of Basra. We're told Ibn al-Ash'af was all for accepting this extremely generous offer, one that basically amounted to a win. After all, when they set out from Sistan, these were exactly their demands. But his coalition had grown too large and unwieldy for him to control, and there was no way he could convince his supporters to accept it. In Abdul Malik's generous offer, they saw weakness, and instead of laying down their arms, they opted to abandon their fortified position for another pitched battle to overthrow Umayyad power once and for all. They faced the Syrians by an area with the grim name Monastery of the Skulls in September, and their enthusiasm helped them start strong, but the diligence of the Syrian forces once again carried the day. Abdul Rahman's many followers dispersed in all directions, forcing the commander himself to escape east with a few thousand close supporters. Some of the larger remnants of his army captured other nearby cities like Basra and Madain, but the Syrians cleared them out in a few short months. Abdul Rahman himself proved to be a more enduring inconvenience. He managed to escape east, but there the men he had left in charge apprehended him in the name of Abdul Malik. All seemed lost, but Rutbil the Zunbil proved to be a man of his word, and he rode into town with a few thousand troops and broke Ibn al-Ash'ath out of jail. Back in Zabulistan, Ibn al-Ash'ath managed to rally 60,000 supporters in short order, and he menaced around the east for a while. A son of al-Muhallab named Yazid managed to defeat many of his proponents in Khurasan, and his support was further weakened by clever Umayyad politics. True to form, Abdul Malik and al-Hajjaj wrote to some of his supporters, all Arabs of course, but from both sides of the tribal rift, promising them clemency if they abandoned their cause and returned to the fold. The Zunbil himself was eventually tempted, and he handed over Ibn al-Ash'af to al-Hajjaj in 704, in return for a promise that the Arabs never invade Zabulistan again, or for a decade, depending on who you ask. Ibn al-Ash'af was chained to another man to be transported to Iraq, but he killed both himself and his warden by jumping from the roof of a building on the way back. Abdul Rahman ibn al-Ash'af's uprising was the most serious threat that the revived Umayyad Caliphate faced during Abdul Malik's reign. The armies he fielded are the largest reported in our sources so far, which says something even considering the tendency towards exaggeration in oral histories. Despite the unprecedented scale of his rebellion, the Umayyads won the day, with their Syrian armies proving the more capable of the two on the battlefield, and their leadership craftier and crucially actually in control. When push came to shove, 
The real unity of the Umayyads meant a lot more than the marriage of convenience which bound the different malcontents lined up against them. Ibn al-Ash'ath began his rebellion around the year 700 and died in 704. The only other developments in the East during those years were Muhallab's many conquests until his death in 701, then the conquests of his son Yazid, who even played a small part in defeating Ibn al-Ash'ath. Just to be clear, by conquests I mean the Arabs beat the armies of the many cities they came across and forced their people to pay tribute. As always, the conquerors wanted no part in running the place, preferring to take riches, slaves, and promises of further tribute instead. Maru remained the center of Arab power in Khurasan, and its latest governor was Yazid ibn al-Muhallab, appointed by al-Hajjaj, who was in charge of the whole east. Al-Hajjaj did well to hold on to Iraq for the Umayyads in the face of such epic opposition. He was surely to blame for instigating much of it, but hey, as long as he defeated it, then he couldn't be accused of failure. Abdul Malik may have been right to get nervous in Damascus, but his offer to replace his loyal governor of Iraq with Ibn al-Ash'ath betrays his misreading of the situation. We're told that he apologized to al-Hajjaj in a letter as soon as the Iraqis turned down his generous offer, telling the governor that he was wrong to have doubted him and was now entirely at his command. Iraq's provinces were surely nowhere near as profitable as they used to be, but Abdul Malik had chosen to humble its tribes by appointing al-Hajjaj, and that was the cost of doing business. Many were pardoned after they admitted to having strayed from justice and apologized profusely. But only the Arabs. There was a wholesale slaughter of any Mawadi who had participated in the uprising. Remember last time when we said that al-Hajjaj had either pardoned or massacred the remnants of Mutraf's rebellion, with narrations supporting both versions? Well, given what we learned today, it is reasonable to assume that he did both. He must have pardoned the Arabs, who submitted in fawning and servile ways, and executed everyone else, especially the increasingly aggrieved Mawali. These converts may have expected their adoption of Islam to endear them to the Arabs, as it was a prerequisite to being allowed to work in Kufa or Basra. Instead, it merely cemented their position as a sort of serving caste in a caliphate with very little tolerance for dissent. Their excessive butchery may have delayed the social problems they posed, even disincentivized further conversion for a while, but it's clear that the treatment of the Mawali had become a recurrent problem for the caliphate. With the defeat of this ultimate rebellion in the east, the Ummah had at long last been tamed. Abdul Malik had his skilled commanders to thank for their many military accomplishments, but he earned his own place in history through his personal vision and discipline. We haven't sufficiently covered the extent and impact of Abdul Malik's many changes, and next time we'll get into them further and finally take a closer look at the man himself. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>